Today's show is brought to you by MongoDB. When you need to focus on building applications, do you want to get bogged down by your database? Definitely not. MongoDB is an intuitive, flexible document database that lets you get to building. MongoDB's document model is a natural way to represent data so you can focus on what matters. And MongoDB Atlas is the best way to use MongoDB. It's a global cloud database service that gives you all the developer productivity of MongoDB, plus the added simplicity of a fully managed database service. You can get started for free with MongoDB Atlas at mongodb.com atlas. That's mongodb.com atlas. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. It is both me and Aaron. Aaron, how are you this week? I'm doing well, doing well. How about yourself? I'm, I'm doing well. It's, uh, it's March, which means here in the south that the pollen is starting to come out. And so if I sound under the weather, uh, it is because of pollen. I do not have the coronavirus, as far as I know. Yep. Brian, I Brian know. left the house during pollen season. Oh. Uh, I am uh, so. We are we are now looking to be sponsored by uh, Flonase or uh, some other some other type of thing. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So we're gonna do cloud news of the week together this week. Um, a little bit of yeah, we both were free, and also because um, uh, actually we're recording this on Saturday, but yesterday was a pretty monumental day for for the podcast. So yesterday was nine years. Yeah, for the podcast, unbelievable. We've had. Uh, We've had more than 7 million people listen to the show, or at least the show's been listened to more than 7 million times. So uh, I guess congratulations to us. It's a, a nice milestone, but uh, man, thank you to everybody who's, who's ever given us any of your time. It's, uh, it's, been, a, it's been a wild ride, and we, we never could have imagined it, uh, it became what it became. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing to add, too, is, is, you know, again, couldn't have done it without everyone. And, you know, another stat is that, you know, this last month, we were just talking about it before we hit record, this last month was our biggest month ever. So still continuing to grow. You know, if you enjoy the content, um, uh, please continue to share it out uh, in, in the community, share this with friends, and and uh, we'll co- continue to uh, create the content as well. But yeah, super, super privileged uh, yeah. to be part of this. Yeah. And one other thing I saw somebody ask us on Twitter uh, earlier today, they said, uh, what's going on with Cloudcast Basics and the, the other show that's been, we're going to spin off? Uh, we are getting very, very close to that. So uh, we expect to, to start launching that uh, here very, very soon. So uh, hang tight. We will get, we'll get news on it uh, very, very soon. So you want to do the first article? Yeah, let's talk about some cloud news of the week. Um, first one I grabbed, and, and this is, I guess, not so much cloud, but sort of fits in this digital transformation thing that we're always talking about and um, how technology, you know, we, we get beyond the technology. Um, Nationwide announced with both Ford and Toyota that they're going to uh, to offer direct insurance uh, through the automakers that's going to be tied to kind of telemetrics that comes from the vehicle. So it, it's interesting in the context of, you know, we've talked for years and years, people would do demos and they would say, well, you know, uh, you know, if you're doing uh, big data or, you know, IoT and you are able to collect information in a vehicle, that might, uh, you know, impact how your, you know, insurance company works. Well, this is bringing all that to, to reality. And, you know, it only happens now because the cars are, you know, basically rolling laptops and collect lots of information. They have real-time links back to, back to things. And it'll be interesting um, just in, in general, how it'll impact, um, you know, how you do things like buy auto insurance. Will you just buy it directly from the company you buy your car from? Or, you know, how will that change the landscape of, uh, of what that buying experience looks like? 
Yeah. And, and kind of weave a, f- a few threads together on this one real quick too. So I know once upon a time, and I don't know if they ever did it because honestly I hadn't kept up with it recently, but I know once upon a time Tesla was thinking about yeah. rolling out, you know, auto insurance to go with their cars. And so <laughs> you might start to see this bundling of insurance with the cars, but I will add this as, um, both a, you know, obviously a, a driver of a car as well as the father of a teenage driver. I, I kind of am on both sides of the fence on this one. Like, for my teenager, yes, I absolutely want to know how she's doing. Um, and I would love to know how safe she is and, and how safe she's driving and how fast she's going. But guess what? And this is probably a lot of us out there. I don't necessarily want the insurance company to know how fast I'm going. Right, I, I'm right, not right. sure. I'm not sure I would qualify for the lowest rate. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's, <laughs> well, and it, it, I, I think the other part that gets really interesting in this is, is, you know, if you are, if you are the insurance company, and you're now buying your insurance through Ford Motor. You, you know, even if even on the back end, the insurance company is providing that information. You're diluting your brand, right? So you no longer think of yourself as a nationwide customer anymore. You think of yourself as a, you know, Ford insurance customer. Um, but I think it it will be very interesting because we're also seeing the, uh, you know, the automotive companies, whether it's you know, um, you know, directly or sort of through partnerships. They're getting into these things that are like, you know, part-time rentals of cars and, you know, I want to rent them for a day and, and all those things are stuff that the insurance companies don't necessarily have a lot of experience in. Um, you know, so like, how do I price policies for a day? How do I know who you are? How do I, you know, and I, and I know some of the stuff we were doing over at MetLife, um, working with that uh, incubator group, they were starting to look at those things. So we're starting to see these, these dots kind of connect themselves between the vehicles being more connected uh, you know, things like insurance, which is a thing you have to have. And then, you know, sort of these new business models and usage models all weaving together. So interesting stuff. You want to move on to the next one? Yeah. What do you got on the list? Uh, so for the next one, we have Red Monk. Um, Red Monk, uh, you know, f- uh, friends of the show, uh, without yep. a doubt. And and they've released their 2020 rankings of programming languages and a lot of really, really interesting data in here. Brian, what was most interesting that, that you were able to kind of pull out of this one? Um, so yeah, they do a great job. They do this every year. Uh, you know, some variation of Java always is number one, which is always an interesting thing because there's, it's just like we've seen things over the years, you know, PaaS is dead and OpenStack's dead and VDI is dead. There's always a, a community that says, well, Java's dead. Well, you know, it's dead, but boy, it comes back as number one every single year. So that's always a, a reaffirmation for that community. Um, I thought the stuff that, that was interesting is, you know, things like Python and R are really big. So that sort of plays to the, um, you know, AI and ML communities. Um, and then there's always these weird battles down a little bit lower in the rankings where it's like, is it a big deal that, you know, Rust or Kotlin or some other language moved up three spaces? Should should everybody, you know, rethink what they do? There's always these weird, like, uh, you know, the developer languages of like, should I throw away all my old knowledge and move everything to this new one? Um, that's always, to me, kind of interesting. Um, I don't know what that means if you're the number 15 or 16 one, but, uh, you know, it yeah. does, uh, it's worth looking into. Yeah. And the other thing that kind of, uh, you know, I, I, I thought was was kind of interesting when I was reading it was yeah Python was number two and then you know, there's always these well hey is Python really a language yeah and it's like it's like okay well yes. at this point that's fine we're gonna call it a language and oh by the way it's really big yeah it's being used a lot so <laughs> whether it's a language or something else it's being used a lot um, next one we had on our list is uh, kind of an interesting one um, I don't know if I put this in a historical context or a what are you doing context. Uh, so, you know, a little while back, uh, Docker, or I'm sorry, 
Mirantis acquired the assets of Docker, sort of the enterprise assets of Docker, basically what you would have called Docker EE. And we, th- we thought that was sort of interesting because, you know, we, we'd covered Docker for a long time. The Docker, uh, you know, technology didn't necessarily pan off as a, as a commercial thing. Um, but what was interesting is Mirantis did two things. One, they, they bought a little tiny company called uh, uh, Contena, which is only like six or seven engineers. Okay, they're doubling down on Kubernetes. But what was interesting is they also said, we're going to go back and revitalize Docker Swarm, which yeah. is... <laughs> That's the one that jumped out at me. <laughs> yeah, it's a, weir- it's a weird thing to do because you go, okay, I- I'm sure there are Docker customers who liked Swarm and-, and the ease of use and all that stuff. So it's like, hey, maybe we'll support this. But but you know what? You own that whole thing. There is nobody else contributing to that. The, the rest of the community is asking you about Kubernetes. So you, you now own this weird problem of like, do you want the thing that's essentially kind of proprietary or do you want the thing that the whole community wants that we're trying to ramp up and figure out? It, it puts them in a weird kind of position, you know, especially if, if you're if they're trying to talk to customers about like, am I moving you forward or am I just kind of, you know, helping you with the old stuff you had? Kind of a, just a, I don't know. I don't know how to in- analyze that one. Well, and, and, you know, and don't get me wrong. I, I know nothing uh, about them and, and the behind the scenes of the decision. But, uh, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, when I see something like that, I immediately go to, well, you know what? I bet you they had some decent sized customers. Yeah. And especially with the Docker EE, you know, assets, they were like, oh, yeah, we still need to do some stuff on Swarm. And they're like, all right, you write a big enough check, we'll revive Swarm. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what all, it felt like. It's always, it's always how it works. It's always how it works. All right. One last one uh, before we wrap it up. Um, company called uh, Clearview, uh, which got a lot of headlines as being the company that would go and scrape all the social media photos that were out there and then created this, uh, I guess, really good facial recognition software that they were selling off to governments. Well, they got hacked. Their customer list got hacked. And people are concerned that maybe their uh, 3 billion photo uh, database also may have potentially gotten hacked. So... Moral of the story, um, you don't get to keep any of your data. And even if you do keep your data, it will get hacked. So <laughs> what's new? Yeah, what's and new? It, this is, oh yeah, at least, you know, and again, for, for us here in the States, you know, we, we have what we, we call our social security numbers. And that's, you know, our un, unique identity in the United States. And there's, there's been folks out there that have said, you know, at the end of the, at the, end of the day, at this point, it's almost a useless number because yeah. it, you can pretty much guarantee it's out there somewhere on yep. the Internet. Yep. And guess what? Your face is probably out there. That's right now. That's right. Well, all right, man, I am going to, I'm going to drop off. I'm going to let you handle the interview and uh, looking forward to hearing, uh, hearing your interview, talking about some mobile and edge stuff. But uh, with that, we're going to wrap up cloud news of the week. Thanks again to everybody for listening to us for the last nine years. And uh, hopefully going forward, you tell a friend and uh, we keep growing this thing together. So with that, we're going to wrap it up and get to Aaron's interview. Today's Cloudcast is sponsored by Datadog, a cloud-scale monitoring service that provides comprehensive visibility into cloud, hybrid, and multi-cloud environments with over 350 integrations. Datadog unifies your metrics, logs, and distributed request traces in one platform so that you can investigate and troubleshoot issues across every layer of your stack. Use Datadog's rich, customizable dashboards and algorithmic alerts to ensure redundancy across multi-cloud deployments and monitor cloud migrations in real time. Try Datadog for yourself with a free trial and you receive a complimentary t-shirt. That 14-day trial can be found just by going to datadog.com slash cloudcast. That's datadog.com slash cloudcast. And we're back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Um, have a really fascinating topic for everyone today. And, and 
you know, what we like to do again with the podcast is kind of learn from everyone in the industry. And so uh, this is an area that I, I, I've kind of dabbled in a little bit, but I, I completely admit uh, would like to learn more. And, and so we, we were able to uh, uh, find a fantastic guest for the show today. So with us, we have Sune. Um, Sune is the founder and CTO of Mobile Edge X. And uh, Sune, why don't you go ahead and tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Um, you've kind of been at this intersection of network virtualization, cloud, and, and edge for quite some time now. Thanks, Aaron. And, and uh, you, you, you're so right that, you know, uh, I've been at intersection of these technologies for almost 25 plus years now, except that, you know, when we started, uh, my career started back in Sun Microsystem and we started bringing, um, building containers at that time. And um, we, we uh, called them zones. They weren't called containers uh, at that time. And, you know, this is, I'm talking year 2005 or so. So, so, you know, nobody knew where containers will reach today. Today, everyone is like, you know, kind of uh, talking about just containers and containers orchestration. But that's kind of, you know, what we started with. Then I went on um, when some microsystem kind of uh, merged with Oracle. I didn't go with the merger and started a startup called Pluribus Network, which was in the software-defined networking space. And the prime purpose of that startup was and the, the startup is still uh, doing great going was to kind of how do you solve the connectivity problem between containers and a lot of uh, services and, and the, how do you bring networking into a kind of a data center environment where networking and storage and compute all have to work together as one unit, right? So that was kind of some of the foundations for software-defined data centers and so on and so forth. And then... Um, and somewhere along, uh, Pluribus kind of started doing uh, great. They were more into from technology, trying to win sales and whatever. And then this whole edge, cloud and edge, and especially how do you take cloud closer to users concepts started coming along. And uh, we, we got approached right by Deutsche Telekom to uh, kind of, and, and they, they approached us on behalf of all uh, telecom industry saying that, look, we we have prime real estate in um, all the cities and everywhere, and you know we can we obviously have a lot of compute there to run just telco services, and a lot of time it's underutilized, and we can bring um, kind of third party applications there, kind of build a, something like a distributed cloud, and then you know my 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 expertise around both containers and networking and kind of the intersection of that, like you said, literally. In the prime reason where I ended up uh, in this uh, mobile HX, and it's like, okay, let's let's uh, you know try and see what we can do here. So lo- long story, done a whole bunch of things around you know distributed systems, networking, um, um, cloud technologies, and stuff like that. And um, fun never goes out of this. So here I am. <laughs> Fantastic and. Uh, let's kind of start at the start, and I almost feel like you know in the early days of our podcast, we 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 start this podcast all about cloud computing, but then we had to start every episode with well, what what do you what's your definition of cloud, right? And and so I'm going to start it with what's your definition of edge because there's some instances where we're talking about network edge devices, sometimes we're talking about edge computing, sometimes we're talking about other things as well. And, and so what's your definition of edge and, and what are some of the historical problems that you have seen there? 
So that's a very excellent question, right? Because a lot of time people think they know it. Reality is when you are running uh, Alexa at home or uh, Apple TV at home, or uh, Apple HomePod at home, that's an edge for your home. That's an edge device right there, right? Which is working with end users and working with the other devices, kind of doing your IoT stuff as well. And that's kind of, you know, a space that you you, you have Amazon and Google and kind of Apple in. Uh, we, we, we are not trying to solve that problem, right? The, 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 for us, the edge starts becoming um, kind of something which is close to users, but not quite in their home, something that can be managed from outside, something that can be industrialized from outside, right? So so what we started calling, uh, at least uh, for us, the edge starts becoming kind of a near edge, near the user's edge. It close by where you can get the performance benefits, the privacy benefits, and all those kind of things. But it's not something that the end user has to deal with himself. And and typically it applies to both end consumers as well as the enterprise customers. And and typically it applies to applications which are a little bit more sophisticated applications rather than just sensor management and, you know, am I still alive? Is my sensor needs a battery change and stuff like that. So this is more around kind of, you know, uh, what we call immersive applications. So for us, Edge starts becoming a little bit more kind of, you know, sitting in uh, telco infrastructure, sitting in the enterprise, large enterprises, data centers, where where it's managed by a more sophisticated set of orchestration software, and you're deploying some of the applications, best of the breed applications there. So that, that's kind of, you know, our definition of Edge. And and then obviously the the... The third definition of edge starts becoming where, where you know cloud is currently sent. So they they are also trying to expand their data centers and reach. So so you know you 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 have a continuum. You have a, think of continuum as well. There's something on device, right? The device itself can be the edge, right? Um, then then you get out and you get into like literally it's my home and what are the devices of the home. And and uh, what is the edge capability at the home? And that's all small stuff that that you see. The next step starts becoming more interesting uh, is uh, what we call near edge or telecom edge. And then you have the public cloud and public cloud trying to go a little bit more distributed, right? So that's that's kind of how we segmented um, the, the the whole space. The the place where most of this stuff is happening these days is kind of either in your home or near your home, uh, especially serving enterprises, basically, right? So the space we are trying to address the near edge and then the place, uh, you know, Alexa's of the world and uh, hey Google of the world are trying to address, which is the house itself. You know, one thing uh, when Brian and I started this podcast uh, way back when, we were always trying to learn. Uh, but then there's always the, the, you know, everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. And when we've openly admitted we're not good when it comes to security, um, in particular as a topic. But, but in thinking about all of this, that immediately pops into, into my head of, of, okay, when you have edge, you have uh, a certain amount of identity management of device management and certainly securing that because, um, it, it kind of stretches you, of course, when you're stretching out to something like that, well, you're stretching the security model as well. And so what are the common, 
concerns or, or roadblocks uh, when it comes to uh, dealing with this? No, that that is an excellent question. You touched on a very interesting topic because, Aaron, what ends up happening is, as as we are finding out, if you read the news every day and you see things every day, you also look at uh, things that are getting declassified over a period of time and whatever. What you realize is that the world of technology is so complicated, right? And what you realize is that, that securing it is almost impossible for individual users, right? Um, and then you start also overlaying the privacy aspects of it because the applications that we are dealing with, and I touched on this a little bit, are a lot more immersive applications, right? What does immersive mean? It's really software processing video feeds or audio feeds in real time. You know, this is your Hey Siri, uh, Alexa, uh, Hey Google, all those kind of services, because, you know, you have to process that in near real time. You got a response in near real time. And then the video services that go in there where, you know, you're trying to do video analytics and retail store, you're trying to run robotics as a hospitality or kind of, you know, um, things like that. Some of the examples I use there, um, two examples that come across quite a bit is um, if you think of um, Taco Bell and it starts from Chick-fil-A and stuff like that. I was amazed. My, my, my son, I mean, we live in uh, Silicon Valley, right? And we try to eat healthy and all that kind of stuff. And my, my, my son, who's a teenager, is really, when he wants to binge, he wants to go to Taco Bell and order really most unhealthy stuff, right? <laughs> yes. And, and the, the way... And the way he does that in the teenager world today, they don't want to go and talk to the person and explain again and again. So Taco Bell has started putting these smart things, kiosk in some of these Taco Bells, where it's like literally um, you go and uh, customize your order and, and they have like tons of customization um, you can do. And, and his comment was, Daddy, I love this. I don't know why can they put a camera in and just recognize it's me walking in and you didn't know what I want. And why can't they just say, Ishan, do you want your original order again? Because he always orders the same thing and same customization, right? And I'm thinking about it and I'm like, oh yeah, that, that's uh, exactly some of the use cases we are dealing with where it's a video camera, you, you have a software that recognizes the, the, the person walking in. The software has literally got less than a second to recognize who the person is and intercept him and say, hey, um, so-and-so, Aaron, you just walked in. How are you doing today? What can I do for you? Would you like the same food? Would you like to customize? And so on and so forth, right? So, same example you start seeing in Walmart, some of the discussions where, you know, one of the problems, this is all public stuff, one of the problems these guys, most of the retailer face, they, they started introducing self-checkout and all, and it's great for a lot of people. I'm sure you and I love to use it because, you know, you just get in, get what you want, scan it, pay it with Apple Pay, and you're out. But it gets misused a lot. A lot of times we, we heard about people kind of swapping labels for cheaper items and scanning that and getting away. So so they are intercepting with technologies and, again, video processing for security and so on and so forth. So two things that come in in these use cases, right, the, 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 the that start emerging is you are processing videos 
and the video is processing sensitive information, right? You want to make sure that information doesn't get misused. Because as a business, you are liable if that information gets misused, right? So, so for these businesses, what they want to do is someone to make sure that the video feeds and the processing software and what they're doing and work can be secure and can be private to them and not get stolen. The other side of the spectrum is the software to do these kinds of things is fairly sophisticated software. So they want to bring best of the breed application, but they don't want to negotiate with the end, uh, what you call it, uh, software developer in terms of like, hey, what are you doing with the information, right? So at MobileJX, one of the prime problems we started realizing is that as a function of our platform, can I offer that trust to the enterprise, to the businesses, to the end users, where they can deploy the best software possible, but then also as a function of the platform, can we go and say that our platform guarantees that the data that is yours, software is processing, is gonna stay where it is, is gonna stay secure, the installation is gonna stay secure, and we take kind of, you know, the best of the breed software necessary to deal with a lot of the problems that you individually cannot deal with. So the name of the game, we, we originally started with uh, trying to solve the latency problem, right? Because Edge is all about latency, you're doing video processing, audio processing in near real time, and you need to get the response out there. Uh, people are playing AR games and so on and so forth. And, and what we started doing is that, oh yeah, latency is important, more important part is when you're trying to go and bring software to end users in a lot of distributed environment, in a lot of heterogeneous environment, that then how do you secure it? How do you make sure the data stays private? So that ends up being some of the real critical problem that we need to solve. And, you know, in a nutshell, you know, how do you make sure the keys are correct? How do you make sure you're using the best algorithms for security and encryption? How do you make sure you rotate the keys at the right time? How do you make sure your software is trying to detect for anomalies? So so all this starts becoming very sophisticated, right? And the number of people who enjoy doing, I mean, people like you and me who enjoy this kind of stuff is uh, getting less and less particularly, right? I mean, the, the, the masses are, including the kids from top schools and CS departments are more into interesting things around, you know, how do I create new applications and how do I create new devices? And the, the, the back end of it, which is, you know, security, distributed systems, distributed algorithms, is um, becoming, finding talent there is harder and harder, right? So that's one of the things we, we, we are solving as a function of the platform, how do you solve these things for the new devices, new applications, especially um, very video centric? Does it make sense, or am I just no? It makes perfect uh, you know, sense. Went down the deep yeah, what I was going to add was, you know, when I when I, I I tend to think about this, and especially you know maybe at the consumer device level, I. I always think about like AR and VR, right? And think about gaming as kind of our primary use case. And I was actually going to ask you a little bit about that, of what are some of the other use cases, but you, you certainly covered that, that very well there. And, and I think this idea of, of using it, I'll just say a visual medium 
um, and the identity becomes the, you know, through a visual medium, but then that immediately leads into that exact problem of, okay, the more we're doing this. And as we move more into a distributed world, we move into a wireless world. How does, you know, that increase in, in bandwidth at the transport layer, you know, in particular, like, let's say, you know, worldwide as 5g starts to come into play, how does that play into a, a design principle? You know, is this just a bigger, faster pipe? Or is this an entirely new implementation that's going to be a heavy lift? Tell us a little bit about that as well. So um, that's, again, a pretty um, excellent question, right? And you, you asked me two questions. What are the other applications? And we kind of touched on that, right? Gaming, especially AR gaming and, you know, some of the application guys we work with, like Nine Tech, who uses uh, Harry Potter Wizard Unite and Pokemon Go, kind of, you know, these are AR games. And, and for a lot of people who are going to listen to this pod, podcast, they, they didn't understand what AR game really is. It really is your process and camera in a physical world, right? So, so you're seeing a physical world and you are overlaying a digital object in a physical world. So the goal is if, if you're wearing an AR glasses, what you see is, 90% real world and 10% are created world, basically, right? So, so think of this way. A lot of these AR game gaming works in context of you and I are together. We are playing a game and kind of uh, we are hunting for a monster. The monster is in a physical world, but the monster is not real, basically, right? And 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 you are shooting at the monster. I am shooting at the monster. So the software kind of go and figure out basically who who missed who shot the monster who should get the the points for it also you know if you are an ir uh, kind of shooting monster and monster in between you miss the monster you might actually end up shooting the other person so there's a lot of real-time stuff going on there so that's kind of you know if you look at the ar game there is a lot happening the the, the software behind and the latency requirements are kind of very very important basically right and 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 being able to deal with multiple users who are at a given location who might not be there permanently becomes another big part of it right similarly you have robotics where a bunch of robots are working together 3d mapping a space kind of working in a factory and you know uh, or working in a hotel or a restaurant whatever or in a dangerous situation right so so what we call slam algorithms and so on and so forth. So so bunch of drones working together. All those use cases have the commonality around. They are devices which are mobile. They are processing videos, so they need large bandwidth. And they are working as a group because the software needs to deal with them on a group. The software needs location aware. Software needs to be close to where the devices are because otherwise the devices get too cumbersome if a lot of processing are happening on the device. And and also doing peer-to-peer where devices are working together doesn't work very well. So what you need is a software close by, which is managing a group of devices together, right? So now let's talk about what 5G brings to the table for these use cases, right? 5G, like I said, has a lot lower latency compared to 4G LTE. 5G obviously has a lot more bandwidth capability, right? So it's uh, faster. It has a fatter pipe. 
But that's not the most interesting part. What is the most interesting part that happens is that 5G required telecom world to re-architect or at least change a lot of the, the infrastructure behind it. So things around, you know, where we can go and recognize who the user is, things around identity, things around location verification, things around network slicing starts becoming very interesting, right? Things where we can go and say that while you're on your phone or your AR glasses, if you're working on 5G, we can reserve a slice for your voice calls and critical 911 calls and SMS and whatever. At the same time, we can give some slices for AR gaming. There are some slices which are for mission-critical applications like robotics and stuff like that. And being able to know these devices, identity of these devices, and not let it go out anywhere where it can be misused. So if you notice, I tied your two questions into a long answer, but (laughs) it really is a lot more complicated than uh, the the capabilities that we see in the press, which is, you know, 5G just brings up lower latency and higher bandwidth. It, it really is uh, a lot of the software API capability and the virtualization capability underneath in form of network slicing and uh, location mapping. And uh, the, the, the other part that comes for a software person like me who's trying to build a sophisticated system, what 5G is opening up is uh, APIs that my software can consume and use to actually get access to a world, a very, very isolated, closed world, basically, right? So so this allows me to string together a more sophisticated service, a more sophisticated platform that works end-to-end. I can map who the users are. I can map what they are trying to do, correlate that with the pipe they are using or the telecom provider they are using, correlate that what what's happening in the telecom network in terms of resource and capacity and try to do something more end-to-end. I mean, this is, at the end of the day, kind of uh, for uh, someone with an engineering background like me, like a holy grail of can I offer an end-to-end service at a global scale which actually does something a lot more than what we are used to, which is delivering nuts and bolts and leaving the real problem on someone else. So that's kind of, you know, where 5G becomes very attractive. And like some of these use cases are really interesting to end users, right? So that's the other nice part of this. This is kind of first time in 15 years I'm seeing a change in applications, a change in infrastructure technologies that is new. Because we, we, when did the world change? Somewhere around 2004, 2005, after we came out of the dot-com burst, we kind of assimilated what we have. And, you know, we, 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 we kind of went, uh, I mean, obviously the processes became faster and better. You know, the, 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 the SATA buses and memory buses became faster and, and things like that. But if you look fundamentally, it's the same nuts and bolts that were created in 2005 and that we have been working on. You know, we, we, we went from individual data centers to building clouds it's the same technology, right? We, we went from even containers in a more industrial atmosphere, but the containers were built in 2005 and I played a role there. 
Um, so, so this is the first time we are seeing a new change, a net new change, both in the application that consume this technology and the need for technology itself to change, right? And my feeling is that we, we the kind of journey we started as an industry in 2005, uh, what resulted in a public cloud, we, we are starting to see the start of the same journey, which will result in something uh, different. Now, I can bet you on it, it won't be the edge as we are trying to say today. It won't be exactly what we think it's going to be today, but I can promise you it's going to be different. And it, it's funny, that's it, it, really eye-opening for me personally because you know, up until now, and, and you know, the, those that remember kind of the, the old versions of all of this, right? You had the 3G and then you had the, you know, kind of 4G slash LTE. And, you know, like, as you mentioned earlier with, with your kids, like I know my kids, like, you know, if they get somewhere and their phone gets slow and they'll just kind of roll their eyes and they're like, oh, I'm on 3G, right? And it's, you, you get to you get to that. And then I'm looking forward to at some point they're like, oh, I'm on LTE. This is so slow. Um, <laughs> but it's more than that. And and like we, we haven't talked about platform as a service, you know, nearly as much on this podcast lately. It's been a couple years since we've really dug in into that. But would it safe to characterize Mobile Edge X's technology as almost like a development paths for edge devices? Is that a safe way to characterize this? So the question one more time, Aaron, I think I didn't understand it fully. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so what it, what I'm wondering is at the end of the day, is your, the, the, the technology there, is it basically a platform for developers to abstract away the APIs, if you will, from 5G and all of these other technologies so that the developers aren't necessarily having to think about the under the covers, if you will, when it comes to edge devices. Does that make sense? It, it totally does. And, and the reason I asked you to repeat that question was because literally you, you, you're reading my mind here. <laughs> this, this might be, at least for a lot of us, uh, not even a billion dollar question. This might end up being a trillion dollar question, basically, because if you look at... Uh, the two worlds, right? The the world of telecom, which is you know offering ubiquitous connectivity, you are on all the time, and you know we can debate the merits of being on all the time or not. But there is definitely a lot of positives that come from that world, basically. And and then you know you have the world of software development, right? Which is very code centric, SDK centric, device centric. What chip I am on? What SDK I'm on what API can I use, what programming language I can use, and all those kind of things. And these two worlds, now that I see the worlds, right, are literally like poles apart, right? The, the world of software is software development and application development is just a very fast moving, very, people don't want to discuss things in abstraction. They just want to do stuff and they want standard interfaces. They want uh, SDKs to go with it, and and they have learned things in the last twenty years that they don't want to change. At this point, software development is becoming very mature. You can't really willy nilly change these things, right? That then on the world of telecom, the way they open up things or the API come out and dealing with the distributed system and all is just a whole different beast and very sophisticated, very complicated. Part of the reason is they're governed by a lot of 
country laws, they're governed by privacy laws. If telecom doesn't work, you know, you always blame the telecom provider. So, so they are used to kind of, you know, being very measured and very slow, right? So marrying the two world where we go and say that giving the develop, developer something which they are used to, hiding the distributed system aspects of it from them so they can just continue working the way they do. And, and like you said, uh, it, it's like uh, abstraction layers in the form of SDKs and APIs that they're used to consuming. But then mapping on the other side that on a telecom infrastructure and being measured about how they go about doing things. So, so that's kind of, you know, what we are building in, in some sense, there's a distributed platform layer, which gives the appearance of a local infrastructure or local cloud. So from a developer standpoint, it doesn't change anything. They develop their containers, they develop their applications. They just say, oh, I want to reach I want to service this kind of application and I want to service this in Germany. I want to service this in US. I want to service this in Japan and that kind of stuff, right? And then as part of a platform, what we do is we go and figure out where the users are and we go and deploy their application. So what we, 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 we do is kind of, you know, provide abstractions that allow us to make edge a runtime of and, and, let me define what a runtime of cloud means. You, you develop and deploy your application in public cloud just as you do today. And then our platform literally goes and takes it where it needs to go, manages it, deals with security, orchestration, all those kind of things, and gets you close to your end users without you needing to do anything about it. Right? Which means we, we need to kind of marry what's on the device in the form of some of the capability we offer on each of these devices and marry what we can get out of the telecom world, both in terms of infrastructure and APIs and, and make it look seamless to people, right? So so our at least effort tends to be around, you know, how do we make sure that it's easy for developers to consume edge without doing anything different? And then for the telecom world, it's easy for them to work with us without them doing anything different. And we, we provide that as part of a abstraction layer in the form of our platform and roll it out. And we, we have been doing this for uh, about two years now. We rolled out a beta program last year, a lot of it in Europe, and then we extended it to Asia and US uh, recently. And, and we are finding out that people are kind of, you know, really loving the way we solve some of these problems, right, without putting the burden on them. Uh, last question, how does this relate to to Seamster? Um, you know, it, it Seamster seems uh, <laughs> to be an initiative that's bringing together vendors and developers. Um, and I know, um, you know, with the recent cancellation of Mobile World Congress, uh, this information is 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 uh, you know just becoming publicly available. So so what can you share about Seamster? So Seamster is our, if you notice the word Seamster, Seamster is, these are the people who would go and stitch things together. So it, it is derived from that world. And what we learned that we, we obviously, our product company, we write a, a whole bunch of software uh, to help developers basically. And, and consume a lot of stuff around telecom. 
But we are also enabling a new world. We are enabling a bridge between the world of developers and telecom. So what ends up happening is that, you know, there are a whole bunch of product managers, business people, um, and so on and so forth, people who are trying to monetize or do new things in between, not necessarily developers from both sides of the house, right? These are people who are trying to figure out for interesting applications, where can they deploy them? They are, they are the product managers in a, in a gaming company. They are product managers in a, a robotics company who are trying to go and address larger markets. And then from a telecom side of the world, obviously they benefit because a lot of time our edge system runs in the telecom side of the house or enterprise side of the house. So both enterprise and telecom side of the house, they, they kind of, you know, are trying to make sure these applications can come into their world so they can benefit from it or they can monetize it um, and so on and so forth. So these are the guys who are also trying to learn and figure out how the world works, how the world of cloud works. So Seamster in, in our, we, we have two initiatives, right? We, we sit in Linux Foundation and, and we work a lot of code and APIs and open source. And that's really for developers and people who are hand-on coders and so on and so forth. But then there is, like I said, a whole bunch of product management, business people, salespeople who are trying to enable a new world, who are trying to monetize a new world. And today they don't have a place to go. They, they can sit in some of these um, developer meetings and developer communities, but there the discussion is really about, hey, where is your Git pull request? Can I, why didn't you approve my pull request? Why didn't you do this API properly? Why didn't you do this code properly? Can you fix this? Where's the test suite for this? And, and, and you know, it, it, it's a really, really very coding-centric community, basically, right? So, so for these other set of people, there's no community, right, that tries to bring together what, what, what are the use cases we are trying to address, what are the issues we are trying to address, what are the new monetization schemes we are trying to address. How does this ecosystem work? So Seamster is our attempt to bring these communities together. If, if, if you are a coder, you're writing code, you belong in our Linux Foundation community. If you're actually trying to figure out how to make this thing work in a real world, how to monetize it, how to get deployed and all that, you belong in the Seamster community, right? So that's kind of, you know, what we are trying to enable where we give these guys information, we help people share information with each other, and we kind of curate some of these uh, use cases and information for both our telecom friends and our uh, enterprise developers and enterprise owners who want to use this. Does it make sense? Or uh... Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And then, Sunay, thank you for that. We're about out of time. So what I'd like to do is kind of wrap up from, from here. Um, what we'll do is we'll, we'll put some links in the show notes to, to all of this information. Um, but, but where can everyone find out more about you, um, you know, meet you at an event, or, or, or follow what the company is doing as well? So generally, we, we are at mobilejects.com. We are uh, updating the, we, we are kind of doing our, uh, around Mobile World Congress, we do a 2.0 release or a major release. So the web pages and all are going to reflect 
what 2.0 releases, uh, Edge Cloud 2.0 releases, and uh, information related to that in the technology and product sections on mobilejx.com. And then generally, you know, we are in most of the conferences, game developer conference, you know, Linux Foundation conferences, and uh, things around Mobile World Congress. And and the easiest way to get hold of me is on LinkedIn. You, 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 we, we, we try to be pretty active on LinkedIn in terms of posting information, in terms of discussing, commenting, and, you know, Twitter is the other way to uh, access us. And then most people know, uh, you know, you can reach me at anything you want, Google, Gmail, Mobile Ajax, and whatever. It should be straightforward to get to me. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. And on uh, behalf of Brian, who wasn't able to uh, make it this week, um, thank you to everyone for listening. And uh, we'll talk to everyone next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media.